Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 5th, 2017, and my guest is author and economist, Lance Pritchett, Senior Fellow at the Center for Global Development and Professor of the Practice of International Development at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Lant first appeared on Econ Talk in 2013 discussing his book, The Rebirth of Education. Lant, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. Now, our topic for today comes from an open letter that Chris Blattman, another former Econ Talk guest, an open letter that Chris wrote to Bill Gates. Gates had suggested that if we want to reduce poverty, we should give sub-Saharan Africans uh, chickens. Uh, right now, I think the number is about 5% of sub-Saharan Africans, uh, and they're very poor people in general, raise chickens. And if we could get that, up, up, that number up to 33%, we could really uh, make a dent into poverty. Mm. And Chris Blattman thought, mm, maybe we should just give them money, which Chris has been working on, and we did it, and he can talk about that with Chris. And mm-hmm. he proposed that experiment to find out which is better, giving people uh, poor people chickens or money. And here's what Chris wrote. Despite the suggestive research that I've cited here, no one has run the race between chickens and cash programs. No one has asked whether the expensive training or supervision that often goes along with these things is worth it. It would be straightforward to run a study with a few thousand people in six countries and eight or 12 variations to understand which combination works best, where, and with whom. To me, and this is again Chris Blattman writing, Bill Gates, to me that answer is the best investment we could make to fight world poverty. Uh, that meaning that if we could just figure this out, we could really uh, make it make some progress. And that's the end mm. of the quote. And then right. you, Lan Pritchett, wrote a lengthy response to this idea, and we'll link to to your response. We'll link to Chris's open letter, et cetera. But you were very critical of of Blattman's proposal, and more generally critical of of I would say Blattman's perspective on development and poverty generally. So what's wrong with the idea of running a, an experiment to settle? this question of whether it's better to give people money or, say, chickens? Uh, there's nothing wrong with that idea. It's just if I had to rank best investments to address world poverty, it wouldn't be first. It might be 999th. Um, and the fundamental issue is when we say the words world poverty, what do we mean? And I am a big detractor of a phenomena that's been going on for a couple of decades now in which development, generally the development institutions like the World Bank and development economics has been moving away from a broad encompassing definition of world poverty to mean people escaping poverty into prosperity to a very narrow, what I call kinky definition where we're going to pursue narrow, low-bar, specific targets like dollar-a-day poverty. So dollar-a-day poverty as a concept was invented in 1991, and, and it, it's, it has slowly uh, eaten its way into the conception of what people mean when they say world poverty, and I just think it's wrong in every conceivable way. 
Well, I didn't know it was invented in 1991. That's uh, very interesting. Uh, is there a person who's associated with the with that invention or an organization? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the World Bank wrote a World Development Report, which is the World Bank's annual flagship, you know, external publication. And they wanted to write it on world poverty and how to address world poverty. And they wanted a headline number of like, okay, if we're going to talk about world poverty, how many poor people are there? And that's kind of a super hard question to answer. But the proposal was let's um, let's call dollar a day in consumption expenditures per person per day suitably adjusted for purchasing power, obviously, across countries. Let's call that the poverty line and let's measure people, how many people are below that line. And I was in the room somewhat, but Martin Revallian, you know, who is now a professor, I think at Georgetown, uh, was in some sense the creator of this number and the argument as to why it should be a dollar a day. And it was incorporated into this report. And so it, it was before then there, I don't think had been in some sense, even any, quasi-consensus global poverty line. So what's wrong? You know, obviously it's arbitrary. Poverty in general is somewhat arbitrary. There's questions of relative or absolute poverty, of course. But we would all agree that if you have less than a dollar a day, your life is challenging relative to a much higher standard of living, say the average in the United States. I guess the question would be, is is there any meaning to the statement – well, now that they're above a dollar a day, they're not poor anymore. I guess that would be one problem with it, but I think you have other problems. So wh- why does it bother you to create that arbitrary cutoff? Well, um, but I think the issue you raised is first and foremost the the big issue, which is if we're going to divide the world into two groups, right, there's going to be type 1 air and type 2 air, right? And what – Explain and, for non yeah, sorry, type one and type two in the is crowd. jargony. But there's going to be who do we say is poor who really isn't, and who do we say is not poor who really is. And basically, the choice of dollar a day poverty, the dollar a day standard, unambiguously, if you're below a dollar a day, you can be characterized as poor. No one's going to dispute that. But if you're at a dollar one a day or a dollar two a day or even at two dollars a day, is there any meaningful sense in which you can be said to be not poor? And I think that's so you can imagine we're going to have a line that in some sense for sure is the lowest. We draw it so incredibly low and so incredibly penurious that no one can dispute that everyone below this line is in fact poor and that uh, but. At the same time, by doing that, you, you know, exclude a whole bunch of people who legitimately could be called poor. Uh, and so my argument is basically let's have a super low bar poverty line and let's call that destitution or let's call that extreme poverty. And let's leave that dollar a day or some super low number like that. And by the way, the whole dollar a day thing has been subject to inflation and now it's a dollar 85 a day and we still call it dollar a day. But OK. Um, and then, but all, let's also say, what's the, you know, conceptual symmetrical counterpart of that? What's the line above which we're pretty comfortable saying if you're above that line, you're not poor, right? And we're, we'll minimize the mistake of calling someone who is poor. Uh, we, we'll sort of, instead of minimizing the odds that we're wrong that you, uh, we said you were poor and you weren't, 
let's minimize the mistake that we said you weren't poor and you are. And my argument is rich countries have a poverty line. And my argument is people below the poverty line in rich countries are legitimately called poor. Um, the people who are below the poverty line in the United States are legitimately poor, uh, in my mind. And that those lines drawn by rich countries tend to be more like not $3 a day or $4 a day. They tend to be more like $15 a day. Um, and so my argument is let's just make sure in the world that we acknowledge that that is, in fact, a legitimate measure of poverty and that we apply that measure of poverty to the whole world, too. So we have world and we could call escaping that poverty line prosperity. We could have all the people in the world who aren't in prosperity, and that's world poverty by one definition, and all the people that are in true destitution or extreme poverty, um, and that's another number. But by only creating statistics around the one number, we bias attention towards exclusively benefiting that group in a way that just has no fundamental legitimacy in economics, no fundamental legitimacy in politics, just no fundamental legitimacy. So when, when we look at the last 20 years or so, a lot of people would point out that due to the growth in the economies of India and China, there's been a huge amount of progress in, quote, fighting poverty, and they would use the measure you're critiquing. They would right. point to the fact that many, many fewer people now in India and China right. and, and elsewhere are earning less than a dollar a day. Yep. Are living on less than a dollar a day, and that's great. Right. We're all, we that's celebrate terrific. that. So, yep. isn't that that's okay, right? That's all good. Sure. So, wh why is that a problem? Well, because the problem is, is that if you move most of the reason, nearly all of the reason why we've, in fact, in the world made progress on reducing dollar day poverty, is that people moved from low growth economies to high growth economies which was mostly associated with switch towards mar more market-oriented reforms at the general level, which increased the overall productivity of the economy, which increased the productivity of the poor, which increased their wages, which led them to escape poverty. So economic growth is, in fact, the key to reducing even low-bar poverty and unambiguously, unquestionably, the only way to reduce high-bar poverty. So economic growth works for both. And when we talk about why um, people in China escaped poverty, um, it was because the Chinese embarked on, you know, moved from a, you know, exclusively Marxist system towards more market, more incentives, more allowance of private property-like mechanisms at first, and then moving increasingly towards private property. Had, but when you focus on low-bar poverty, you get tempted to focus on a programmatic approach like chickens. You say, oh, let's, if we have a low-bar poverty line and we're identifying people below that low-bar poverty line, you can imagine that the solution to that low-bar problem can be addressed programmatically. I can pick out that individual. I can do something for or to that individual, and that individual will cross the poverty line. And treating world poverty as if it can address programmatically biases attention away from the real solution to poverty, which is having higher productivity economies. So that's a very deep point, and uh, I have a feeling uh, for listeners out there, I have a feeling this is going to be a um, a theme through a few episodes. And in particular, I, I can't help but note that growth has gotten a bad name recently in the United States, mistakenly in my opinion. 
Right. Because uh, I do think the gains to growth have been much more widely spread than than some numbers suggest. So, but focusing on this issue of poor countries, one way to think about this is that you know if a person has a um, has a, a tumor. Uh, you'd want to operate on them, remove the tumor, and they would be back, we hope, into a state of health. If you live in a country that generates tumors, going person by person is probably not the right way to do it. So one way to think about this chicken issue is you're suggesting that focusing on chick- chickens is, is a Band-Aid. It's not a uh, systemic way to make progress. Exactly. And I think I hadn't thought of it. And I tell you, that's a pretty good analogy. It, in, in, because I think one of the many um, <clears throat> downsides of measuring this low bar poverty or destitution is it leads you into a mentality in which you think the problem with the poor person is the poor person. But mostly, High levels of poverty are not a reflection of personal pathology. They're a reflection of systemic pathology. Mostly in the world, there aren't poor people. There are people in poor places. So if you, know, if you say, why are there high levels of poverty in, Nigerian, in Nigeria? It has nothing to do with the personal characteristics of the Nigerians who we would measure as being below the poverty line. It's not like they are uniquely endowed with some poverty-creating characteristic that needs to be alleviated. Um, they are in Nigeria, and Nigeria is a low-productivity place, and everything we have learned about economic growth suggests that the factor we call A in our equations as economists or just the general factor that determines what the productivity of all factors in the economy is, from capital to raw labor to you know, human capital is affected by this general productivity term and people are poor in Nigeria because they're applying their labor and their skills and their capital in a low productivity environment. So, I mean, that's extremely uh, interesting and and I think uh, plausibly true. You could imagine an experiment and we run this experiment in a very bad form, but we, people come from poor countries to the United States and they earn more than a dollar a day. They they may have gone from a a world where they were earning a dollar a day. When they come to the United States, they earn a lot more than a dollar a day. And it's not, I emphasize, not because we have a higher minimum wage. It's because those skills in the American economy, the bad person skills are much higher. Now, of course, there's a problem that we don't get a random assortment of people who come here. We get people who have tend to be higher ambition and drive, That problem is not at all the issue. I agree. Michael, no, I agree. But My, could, Michael Clemens and I have a paper, as you might know, that is titled The Place Premium, in which we do exactly the numbers you're talking about. We say, let's take the U.S. Census and look at Nigerians, born in Nigeria, educated in Nigeria, working in the, in the U.S., and let's take a labor force census of Nigerians, born in Nigeria, educated in Nigeria, working in Nigeria, and let's just say, what's the wage of the observationally equivalent person in Nigeria and the observationally equivalent person in the U.S.? And those numbers, you know, some the that wage for a low-skill person, somebody with less than high school education, the it's 16 times. So your wage goes up 16-fold 
not sixteen percent, not one hundred sixty percent. I believe that number is in the ballpark, and it's a big enough number that it's probably uh, uh, and reliable. Then, and, and then, by the way, we have done every conceivable correction for how much this is biased by. Yes, the, so first of all, we've corrected for observational equivalence. Yeah, right? the problem is non-observational. The intangible exactly. things like and, ambition, passion, and, drive, reliability, etc. Exactly. So we have we have pursued like six separate ways of thinking about the magnitude of that, how much bias that number is. In the consensus is a, at most about twenty five percent of the of that is selection of low uh, selection. Particularly, by the way, we're talking about low skill, right? If we're talking about who's at Harvard University or you know, clearly that's massively selected. But we're talking about people with less than a high school education, right? So we're talking about Nigerians working in the United States with less than a high school education. By and large, when we look at the occupations undertaken by immigrants in the U.S. with less than a high school occupation, none of them are at Harvard. None of them are doing heart surgery at Mass General. Yeah. You know, they're in low-skill occupations. So the idea that not we making, have— They might be poor by the United States standards, but they'd be doing pretty right. well in Nigeria. Super, super, again, 16 not, times as much yeah, as they would have made in Nigeria. Not so, in Nigeria, but the equivalent of a Nigerian. Um, exactly. And so so the issue of selection is an important conceptual issue, but you know that would reduce the ratio from 16 to maybe 14, right? So it's still, you know, we're not, this is like, you know, making tiny adjustments to a huge number. It's like we might be off on the distance from the U.S., you know, from... We we might if we're comparing the distance from the U.S. to Europe and U.S. to the moon, we can misestimate the distance of U.S. to the moon by ten or twenty percent, and it'd be a trivial adjustment in the comparison. And that's what we're facing here. The adjustment for selection for the wage gains of low skill workers is you know a tiny adjustment on a massive number, and, and like six different methods. Methodologically, we have this nailed. Well, I hope you're right, but and I'm willing to accept it as a truth, and I'm certainly willing to accept it as a truth uh, for now. So l- let's right. accept that as true. <laughs> right. Uh, and, that, and by the way, that does precisely illustrate the point that it's not Nigerians. It's Nigeria because this is exactly the thought experiment. Let's take this poor person, you know, this person who would be poor in their country and just put them in a high-productivity environment – and see whether in absolute terms they get massively more productive and absolutely. And by the way, we can do the calculation of like how many people from Haiti in the world are not poor. Well, 82% of all Haitians who aren't poor aren't poor are living in the United States. So the route out of poverty for a Haitian is to get out of Haiti into a high productivity environment like the United States. And then they relative to any reasonable, you know, even a global high bar poverty, they escape poverty, and all of them escape low bar poverty. And this gets us back to the uh, remark I make about every seven episodes on Econ Talk, which is the the biggest way to reduce um, poverty is is luggage to get pe- make it easier for people to leave. <laughs> the problem with that yep. joke, yep. Uh, which I it's not a funny joke actually, you know, it's a it's a clever joke, but it's not it's not actually funny. Is uh, the problem is of course they need somewhere to go. And, I, and I'm right. going to channel my inner Chris Blattman right now and, and suggest mm. that, okay, uh, there's no doubt that people in sub-Saharan Africa are poor because sub-Saharan Africa is a tough place to be productive. And it doesn't have economies of scale and it doesn't have a lot of capital and it's a tough place to live. And even with chickens, it's not so easy. 
but they don't do very well there, people. And so given that they're probably not moving to France or the United States tomorrow, right. uh, what do we do for them? And, and then the question is, I think Chris would say, it's better to give them money or chickens than do nothing. It's better to, better to give them something to reduce their personal straits rather than just say, well, it's not their fault, of course. It's the system they were born into, which, of course, is tr- probably true. But now what? And I think Chris would say, we do have to decide if we're going to help them, what way is most effective. And then we might want to know whether it's giving them something like chickens, some tool, a cow, uh, so, uh, some kind of uh, a wheelbarrow, some kind of capital or, or, or a chicken versus cash. And Chris says, I think we should give cash. And there's some evidence that that's a good idea. Other people would say no, like Bill Gates saying, let's give chickens. And so Chris has proposed, let's, let's try to figure out whether this is a, uh, a horse race we could decide. Let's do an experiment. So is, is that a bad idea? I, again, <clears throat> it's not a bad idea, but it's not a good idea. Um, because we've, there's really three options, right? One is we could, uh, and I have a book titled Let Their People Come. So we could let their people come unambiguously. It's the largest, most reliable way to attack global poverty. Nobody's mostly talking about it for political reasons. Yeah, that a lot they of people think are against it. Happen. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people are against it. We could have a whole session on that. Second, though, the second is we could mitigate the consequences of Nigeria's low productivity through a variety of programmatic approaches to attack targeted individuals with interventions that would raise their income. And we could debate whether that should be cash checks. But the third option is that we could <clears throat> devote money, resources, time, talent, research effort to figuring out how to get Nigeria as an economy, society, and polity to become more developed, to become more productive, the government more responsive, uh, the administration more capable across the board. So we could focus on systemic interventions. So let me just – so – India, I, I went to India in 1991. India in 1991 was on the verge of an incipient macro crisis that had affected many Latin American states where there was going to be debt problems. There was a overvalued exchange rate that was causing balance of payments problems. All the symptoms that had led ultimately to, you know, the decades of lost growth in Latin America. India you know, ultimately acted quite decisively to shift their fundamental economic strategy from a more inward, you know, pro-government, regulated economy towards a more market-oriented economy. Um, I have done work on, you know, research on economic growth in which we look at specific episodes of growth, when they began, how long they lasted, and what was the total value of the episode, right? When you look, India has had two growth accelerations according to this econometric procedure of dating when episodes started. One that started in 1993, kind of after the year of reforms, and one in 2002. Those two reforms combined added at least $2 trillion of GDP that is being produced in India today that wouldn't have been produced counterfactually had they maintained business as usual growth um, relative instead of the growth they got from the reforms or from whatever happened, right? Um, and I'm not so much arguing what the reforms were, but they did do something. Everybody acknowledged that there was a fundamental shift in strategy, and the consequence was we observe in some 
econometric procedure applied to all countries in the world. There was a growth acceleration in 93. There was another subsequent growth acceleration in 2002. The combination of those two growth accelerations produced $2 trillion in additional GDP in India. And that GDP, of course, went to more than just the top 1%, say. Absolutely. You started by saying India and China have had very rapid expansions um, in growth and very rapid reduction in poverty. So there has been just an extraordinarily um, large cumulative reduction in poverty in India over precisely that period. And there's a huge debate about the magnitude of that, which we can come back to. But no one doubts that India is night and day a different country for across the board than it was in 1991. So So my argument is, how much money should you have invested in creating the conditions in which India did the thing that created $2 trillion of GDP versus how much of money should you have invested in giving Indians chickens in 1991? Well, I think it's a no-brainer that anything we could have done to increase the probability uh, that India did the right thing rather than the wrong thing and descend into some Latin America decades of lost growth from a macro crisis was ex post fantastically a high return investment because it augmented the productivity of all factors in India and also induced people to you know invest more in creating all kinds of factors. So in my mind investing in creating the conditions for countries to adopt development promoting policies is enormously higher returns than investing money in the question of cash versus chickens. Yeah, I'm tempted to agree with you, but I can't. So let me let me <laughs> let me disagree with you and you try to okay, tell sure. me why I'm wrong. Um sure. I want to start by saying we may not have time to come back to it. I don't think fifteen million dollars spent on trying to figure out whether chickens are better than cash is money well spent either. That's a different debate, though. I think you're making a much richer argument against uh, that. And if I have time, I'll say why I believe that. But I want to get back to the this richer argument you're making, which I find extremely interesting. So it's, here's what I, don't, what I find troubling about it. Uh, we can think of it in a couple different ways. Let's, when, let's, this is the Lant Pritchett open letter to Bill Gates. Bill, don't spend that $15 million on um, chickens. Take the $15 million, pay some really bad – uh, leader in some sub-Saharan African country, say twelve million, to leave, and <laughs> you run the country for a while, and just to hire with the other three million, hire Lant Pritchett and a bunch of his friends to tell you what to do right, and then you'll solve the problem. And the reason I've, that's a little bit of a parody, but we've spent a lot of money through the World Bank trying to figure out how to make things better. Some people will tell you, "Oh, we know how to do it." Others would say, boy, it's kind of subtle and difficult, and the really key parts are endogenous, and they're not – and they're organic, and you can't impose them from the outside. And really, there's not much we can do. And again, let's just at least give them chickens. I mean, if I really thought that we could really – that we could significantly influence the lousy, poorly governed countries of the world to liberate their citizens' talents and and let them flourish, I'd be all for it. I just don't think we – know that well how to do that but this i i find this general condition we're in just really supremely puzzling which is at the end of world war ii we created the and in the subsequent events we created a self-conscious notion 
that we were we as a global system was going to be structured in order to promote the development of the newly decolonialized sovereign states. And so development as a fundamental idea was born roughly as part of the post-World War II shift in mindset, shift in the global political order. The years from 1950 to 2010 have, on every single measure of human well-being, been the best 60 years in the history of man by a factor multiple. Agreed. Education has gone from two years on average in developing countries to seven years on average in developing countries. Infant mortality has plummeted in nearly every country in the world. Economic growth has chugged along at 2%, so people worry it hasn't been a converging rate of growth, chugged along on average in the world at 2%, which means the world is enormously richer than it was 60 years ago. Many countries in various waves, have not just had average growth of 2%, but have managed long sustained episodes. Absolute poverty has absolutely plummeted during this period. Everyone, team development won. Team development is the most successful team in improving human well-being in the history of man by a factor multiple. What is? Team development. What's, Think of team what is, development. What is that? What do you mean by team that? Team development is we have this group of – we have a mentality that we are going to self-consciously promote development, and that's going to involve some development organizations. It's going to involve some research into development economics. It's going to involve some research into things. It's going to involve a global order that's open to trade. It's going to involve a whole bunch of things, right? The, but the point is the world is – massively more on every single conceivable measure of human well-being, night and day better off than it was before people self-consciously said, let's promote development. So during well, the development... Correlationism causation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Believe me, I, I understand I know that. you do. So, yeah. Right? But the point is, we don't want to get into the... So the point is, but let's at least start from that. We are not trying to parse out why there was failure. We're trying to parse out, I mean, correlation isn't causation, but at least let's get the facts right. The facts are there was massive success, and then you can object, yeah, but the fact there wasn't massive success doesn't mean that development aid played any role in it. I agree, but we are trying to parse out attribution of massive success, not attribution of failure, whereas oftentimes, People start talking about foreign aid as if it is obvious and somehow that it was ineffective and a failure. Well, if in fact the world had in fact been a failure, if in fact there hadn't been progress for 50 years, then you could, then it's attribution of failure. But we're in attribution of success. And then the question is correlation isn't causation, but let's not get obsessed with um, the counterfactual over the factual. The factual is things are enormously better by factor multiples than any previous episode in human history. And it just so happens in this episode of human history, all of these things happened, including groups of people self-consciously promoting development. So it's not at all obvious that they failed. If development had been a failure in the sense that there hadn't been massive improvements in human well-being, then we could be discussing you know, the anatomy and the pathology of failure. But we shouldn't you know, act as if poverty has like fallen massively in the world. 
So it's not as if we have failed in some sense to reduce poverty. Now, well, the question did, is who's we? Did, who's we and how did it happen, yeah. right? But again, let's run the thought experiment of, uh, you know, and uh, let's run the thought experiment. In 1978, right, Deng Xiaoping decides that China is going to pursue a fundamentally different economic model, right? You can imagine that that decision was completely independent of a discipline called economics, uh, completely independent of people having demonstrated the differential growth rates in GDP per capita of Korea and Taiwan versus what was happening. You can imagine that the ideas and concepts of a more market-oriented economy were completely irrelevant to his decision, but that seems pretty implausible to me. It seems to me he was probably influenced by evidence, by discussion, by conceptual advances, by rhetoric, by arguments, and that paid off in the sense that forget the three trillion or two trillion added in in um, in India. You know, China has added eleven trillion dollars in additional GDP relative to the counterfactual of what we would have predicted for China had China... So you can say, I don't know how much credit we can take for that $11 trillion, but let's keep in mind the question is how to apportion the attribution of the $11 trillion in success. Suppose the development industry in creating the mindset that made the idea of a development-oriented reform possible contributed one-tenth of one percent to that $11 trillion gain in China. It was still worth it. By an order of magnitude. Okay, so I think <laughs> we got it. we have a vocabulary issue here, and then I, I think a, right. a conceptual issue. So when you talked about development aid making a difference, I think most people thought, as I did when you said it, you're talking about. No, no, I, 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 I tried never to say that. I thought I thought I heard you say that, which to me means giving no, no. people money. But what you're saying no, no, no. is that we've learned I'm some saying stuff. Team development, right? We've learned everything some stuff. we did to promote development, right? Some of which was giving people money. I don't think the money given via aid was particularly the causal mechanism that caused success. It's hard to argue that, given that exactly China and India exactly. didn't get a lot of it. The countries that did didn't do nearly as well, et cetera, et cetera. So let me, right. but, but let me now critique your broader claim. And, and, right. and in doing so, I'm going to give I'm going to make myself squirm a little bit because I really like <laughs> your, I really like your claim, but I have to concede when I see the rest of the evidence that maybe it's a little more complicated. So mm-hmm. you may have an answer for it, or you may be squirming mm-hmm. a little bit yourself. You let me know. So here's the thing that I notice: I look at you. I, I don't know how you look at the world exactly, but I tend to be a, a bottom up rather than a top down person. Recognizing, Absolutely. of course, recognizing, of course, that there are some really important things in the top down that matter: rule of law, contracts that get enforced, private property, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't, I'm not an anarchist. I do think it's really important to allow right. bottom up flourishing. That certain things come from the top, and like you, I believe very strongly that the systems that don't allow individuals to flourish are ones that are governed badly. However. When I then ask, so what is the set of key institutions, et cetera, that make uh, – allow countries to escape poverty dramatically? We did another type of experiment in the last 40 years. We, we tore down the, the uh, Iron Curtain and yeah. communism disappeared. And a lot of us would have thought and did think that once – Russia and other Eastern European countries became more market-oriented. They were going to just explode in their flourishing. Mm. And, and we would also argue – we could also argue 
uh, and that didn't happen. Uh, mm. and, and we have to then say, well, that's because we have a lot of hemming and hawing. And then we look at the countries like a country like China, which it's true it went to a market-oriented process, but it did it with a very centralized authority at the top that's been steering lots of things for a long time. It may blow up in their face as they build these cities in the middle of nowhere that nobody's living in, but they seem to be doing pretty well for running development from the top down rather than Mm. the bottom up. And then given those two things, how does someone like me with my viewpoint tell a poor country what they're supposed to do? It seems to me, again, it's not obvious. So I, I come back to this question of, you mentioned India in the 19, early 1990s, mid early 2000s, they did the, quote, right thing. What's the lesson then for Nigeria? What's the lesson for Sudan? What's the lesson for uh, Peru, for Argentina, et cetera? And, and, you know, it's easy to say what the lesson is. Oh, they need better property rights. They need less corruption. They need a more representative government. They need more transparency. They need less red tape. I don't know how to get there from here. I don't know how to invest $15 million or even 150 to make that more likely. Uh, I think you do. Okay. <laughs> I me. think you invest in um, people in those countries who are researching, acting, and investigating and talking about precisely those questions. I think investing $15 million in a group in Nigeria who was asking in a evidence and experience-based way how to reduce corruption in Nigeria – I think that seems like a pretty plausible way to get those questions answered. The not Bank, The World Bank does that not, every day, right? The World Bank, I have friends who work there. They, they travel to a country. They write these great studies. They tell them what they should do, and the study <laughs> gets put in a drawer. I, I think that is a complete and total caricature uh, of what the World Bank does, and I, I think they're, they're missing the point um, in the sense that think of – so I am a huge believer, not a huge believer in Keynes's sort of idea that what drives the practical men of affairs of the world um, uh, is, you know, the ideas of some long dead scribbler, right? So I you think I like to believe that, Land. As, as a scribbler, I can see why that appeals to you and me. But exactly, <laughs> it remains to what be, could be a more I, self-serving I belief about the yeah, world? I know it appeals um, to you, but keep going. Okay, um, uh, it appeals to me too. That's why I'm doing this program. Right? I'm not doing it right, because, exactly. because I think you, you it's, were, you're, you're you trying know, to get people out in the world to, to listen learn to ideas to because learn to learn yeah. something. Okay. Now, so I think, <clears throat> and let me just. <clears throat> Uh, and I, I first heard this view, and I'll give credit where credit is due. I first heard this view um, from you know Paul Krugman. Paul Krugman said, "What's the value of economic research?" And he said, "You know, there's this micro-macro kind of paradox. You look at each individual paper published in economics, and it seems stupid and silly and trivial, right? And so, why are we doing it?" His view is. You do all of this kind of work, not because you expect the individual report that's written to make a difference, but the overall milieu and the professional consensus that arises about general directions and, you know, creates ideas about the world. 
themselves become influential, but they only become influential because they're built on this kind of mound of stuff. Each one, you know, it's like a mound of gravel. Each piece, each rock, you could pick it up and go, ah, this is nothing. Man, look at this. This is stupid. Who needs this? And you could pick up the next peak full gravel and say, oh, this is stupid. But a mound of gravel is a mound of gravel. So I think your friends that say they go to Nigeria, they write a report, nobody reads it, they don't see that they're a mound of gravel. They are a mound of gravel. We've changed what the world believes on all kinds of things. I have lived through one of the most powerful social movements of the 20th century. And the social movement was called free trade. There were a group of us that were committed to free trade, that thought the developing countries having imposed and adopted an inward-looking, trade-restricting strategy was harming world poverty. And we consciously used every lever at our disposal to change people's ideas about free trade, and we won. We swept the board. We were fantastically successful, and I continue to believe... (laughs) I think, believe me... The, the revisions to the free trade consensus that are going on are moving back 2% of where the world was 30 years ago. 30 years ago, countries, you know, 30 years ago, all kinds of countries essentially banned all imports of consumer products. Like in India, every single consumer product was banned, just banned. It wasn't even a tariff. It was just banned, right? Countries maintained lists of, you know, imports There were imports that were banned, imports that were under some scheme where you needed a permit for, and that was the regime, right? You couldn't import anything without a permit. That's gone, never to come back, right? We might reintroduce some tariffs. We might go back on some deep commitments to integrated areas, but relative to where the world was in the late 1980s, free trade won. And how did free trade win? I could point to each individual study on the impact of free trade and say that study had no impact, that study had no impact, that study had no impact, and yet somehow there was the huge impact. So I think trying to, I, I think what we're, the, we're, we're, we're suffering from the perils of partial attribution. We're trying to ease out this causation question by looking at each individual piece of gravel and ignore that there's a, uh, there's a pile of gravel there. So I think you know, devoting time, energy, resources to creating the ideas that motivate, help Nigerians construct a reality within Nigeria in which Nigerians promote a more prosperous economy, a more responsive polity, a more capable state is super important. And we could look again, and this is the problem, is donors said, oh, no, no, what was the impact of this study that I financed versus giving somebody a chicken, Right. That's the mindset that I'm attacking because you're, you're ignoring the fact that the study is contributing to what might be a mound of gravel that will be enormously larger, whereas there's no possibility that giving somebody a chicken creates a larger pile of gravel. It is what it is, full stop, that's all you've done. So I think investing in the pieces of gravel that are going to make the mound that are going to change the world is enormously higher returns than saying we'll ignore building the pound of gravel. We'll take for granted there is no pound of gravel. It can't be built because each individual piece is so small and focus on, you know, giving chickens away because these countries are bound to be poor. Let's do philanthropy on an individuated basis. Just wrong, wrong, wrong. That's really interesting. Uh, It reminded me of a of an old line of uh, Milton Friedman's. 
He would say that the uh, sum of negligible effects need not be negligible. That is, <laughs> things accumulate into that pile of gravel you're talking about. Now, I don't agree with the with about half of what you said. I don't think that, and unfortunately, I have to disagree with Paul Krugman. I don't think that the problem uh, with economic research is that it's just a little pile of gravel that eventually builds. I don't think a lot of it. I don't think builds very well, and it doesn't even deserve to be in the pile. And that's that's a separate that's a separate point. I think that's the deeper, a separate issue. Yeah, yeah but I, and point, I agree. A lot of it, and there is a lot of contesting. Some people are building a pile in the wrong place. Yeah, and they're right? building a and pile. They're, right, they're building a pile that actually is counterproductive. Right. But but let's. Right. I, I think the deeper point. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and try to take your claim as far as I can and see it because I think it's a really interesting claim. You're saying there is a. Uh, cultural zeitgeist, a, a milieu, a, I can use two pretentious words in one sentence there. Right. Uh, there there's a certain right. – there's something in the air. It's, again, that right. Keynesian idea almost. There's something in the air that, that makes freedom or trade or incentives the, the default. Uh, right. I like the way uh, Dan Klein puts it. He said, Adam Smith had a presumption of liberty, meaning he wasn't a – a libertarian or a hardcore anarchist or anything, his view of the world was freedom tends to be the, the thing that generally works. There are exceptions. It may not work well every right. time, but right. the burden of proof is on those who would take it away, not those who would impose it. And I think that cultural view is, which was true in Smith's time, and it's been true through much of the United States, and is definitely not true in, in many places of the world and in many times. That's that has a value. The way I hear what you're saying is that has a value that's that's really quite extraordinarily large. And once you lose that, which I think to some extent we are at risk of losing it right now and mm-hmm. have been for the last 20 or 30 years in the United States, once the default once the burden of proof is on those who would argue for liberty, then uh we may lose something very valuable that that isn't wasn't obviously created by any one book, any one paper. And I was once at a meeting, I've, I don't think I've told this story on the air. If I have, I uh, apologize. But I was once at a meeting where somebody said, you know, we just need a book that explains how markets work. And then just give that to people. And you know, my view was, uh, well, we need about 100 books like that. We have quite a few, actually. We have more than one. And most people don't read them or don't find them compelling. So that's not the solution. But the idea that you need a hundred, that you need different ways of telling a story and of convincing the body politic to the extent it's existing, in, a, in a, ideally in a freeish country, that that matters a lot. Even though it's not like there's a study that comes out and says, "Oh, I guess free trade's good." So where where we I agree that's a fascinating idea. Where we disagree is I think a lot of it came from Adam Smith and hasn't we haven't added that much to the pile. I think. You know, I think about Ma- Maggie Thatcher, who supposedly carried around the Wealth of Nations in her pocketbook. I don't know if that's a true story or not. But uh, <laughs> you know, when she moved to a more market set of policies in England and per capita income in England grew dramatically relative to other countries in Europe, maybe that was due to the free market approach she took. And to the extent that it is, I don't think it was due to the you know, a, a piece in, the, uh, in Econometrica. I think it was due to the fact that she had that book in her pocketbook. But I don't. I don't think you can. <clears throat> I don't think you can maintain the power of those ideas without people actively working on them. And Fair to enough. the extent that the field of development economics 
and smart, genius, capable people like Chris Blattman aren't fundamentally seen as the perpetuators of a fundamental idea that roughly market-oriented economies are the path to increasing productivity that will reduce poverty and get distracted into let's you know let's ignore that and focus just on mitigating the consequences of low productivity i think that's a loss to the world uh i think reallocating people from addressing the big question even if it's hard to see how they do it even if it's hard to see the impact and moving to the directly attributable i think is a huge mistake um, and I think it's it, the, I, an analogy I came up with, um, sort of thinking about what I call, you know, what I want to call the perils of partial attribution, which is this obsession with what caused what ignores, like I say, there is a huge mound of gravel now. Human well-being is enormously better off than it was before people started trying to self-consciously promote it through a field called, among other things, development economics. And we shouldn't just ignore that that mound of gravel has, in fact, been built. Or And maybe it wasn't this study or that study, or maybe who knows, but it is there. We have to explain that it's there, right? And, and it's mostly there. Most of poverty reduction in the world is because, you know, in, you know, India, China, Vietnam, Indonesia in the 60s, one after another, you point to when the poverty reduction began. It just so happened to begin in a dramatic fashion when countries moved towards more market-oriented, growth-oriented policies. And none of it, 0% of Indonesia's poverty reduction was due to its pursuing more effective poverty programs. So devoting, imagining that the high returns to poverty reduction come from investment in more effective programs when in fact none of the actual variation is explained by that seems an odd way to go about doing science. It's the ultimate drunk under the headlight approach. We have a technique for providing, you know, attribution to the reduction in poverty to this, so we'll apply it to things that we know for sure don't explain the aggregate reductions in poverty. We know for sure 100% that none of the poverty reduction in Indonesia from 65 to 96 was poverty programs. We know for sure that a very small fraction of the reduction in poverty in Vietnam from more than half of the population to under 10% was the result of program efforts. We know for sure that it's not the story of China. For sure, right? So why we know that these big facts for sure but are continued to say the highest return is investing enormously valuable resources of economic trained people who are like massively intelligent and massively capable to these tiny little questions. I just don't see how people get to that conclusion as opposed to having them focus on continuing to build the mound of gravel one small piece at a time, even though we can't ex post do the attribution. So my analogy is, right? <clears throat> is <clears throat> certain players in basketball, right? They score a lot of points. And since we keep track of individual points, it draws your attention to, oh, this player must have been a good NBA player because he scored a lot of points. But when they started actually doing, did they contribute to their team winning? It turns out there are players, and I've been told by someone who knows this industry that there's a player that played for Houston, Kelly Martin, who scored a lot of points, but just was terrible on defense. <laughs> Only <laughs> and, half the game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Only half the game, right? But we don't and people, 
people said, oh, but he just scores so many points. It must be the case that he's contributing to our victory. Because look, we keep track and we know this is how many points he has. And we didn't actually keep track in any, it's harder to, it's harder to attribute causality on defense, right? But it turns out, once you looked at it, it turns out he was negative value added. He actually, you know, reduced wins above replacement relative to the average NBA player because his defense was so truly spectacularly awful that it actually, so this super high scorer would have been regarded as a star under attribution model that was incomplete in attributing to all of its effects was actually a below average contribution to wins for his team. So I worry that, you know, moving too much to, we can, we, to the attribution model, what am I doing for poverty that I can attribute directly to the actions of this individual is like focusing exclusively on points scored of an individual player and not thinking about what are you contributing to the team wins. Wow. And, I'm, and I think team wins of team development are going to come when we keep our eyes focused on the big picture, what, you know, the default to where, you know, what can we do? You know, the fact that we can't answer precisely the question, what we should do to promote economic growth doesn't mean we shouldn't have nearly everybody working on that question. So I, I hope uh, I hope Chris Blattman can come on and speak for himself. And I, I want to yeah. move away from Chris per se and just talk about the, the general phenomenon that there are a lot of people doing uh, these programmatic changes. Um, mm-hmm. And there's certainly an incentive issue there for those scholars, especially when they're younger, to find uh, things that'll get them tenure rather than big picture things that might be a dead end. So we understand that problem in economics. Um and and we'll put that to the side. I think, I think the more interesting. <laughs> why, are we, defense, why, whoa, whoa, whoa. why are we putting that to the side? Because, that seems pretty I'm, relevant. No, we're putting it to the side for this conversation. I wouldn't put it to the side. I think it's okay. huge. I'm just saying I don't have anything more to say about it, and okay. it'd be interesting to hear what Chris would and others like Chris would say about it. I want to I want to ask a, a different question. I want to defend the programmatic approach, even though I, I certainly agree with you uh, in some in some dimension. But I want to defend the programmatic approach for for a minute, the the small changes in poverty. I want to come back to that argument, which is um, there was a study done by uh, uh, Michael Kramer and some others back in I forget what year that maybe it was useful to deworm children. Right, right. This electrified the world because the impacts were so large. It got a lot of people to – Devote resources to deworming. We've talked about that with Will McCaskill on effective altruism. Mm. And since that, an episode on that, and since that enthusiasm got started, there's been an enormous pushback on that finding and still up in the air. There's still a debate, mm. I'd say. But a lot of people said, well, you know, when we tried to do that experiment in a larger scale, it didn't scale. A lot mm. of the, the magnitudes were smaller. And we found what you found out was that in that village, maybe it helped made a big difference, but it doesn't mean it's true for say all of of poor people in the world. Right. Deworming right. doesn't have the return we thought. Now, right. so my view is on this is that it's still an open question. I'm obviously the the people who are in favor of deworming have argued that those studies questioning their findings are wrong, and and we'll go back and forth. Maybe we'll make some progress on that question. Put that to the side. Let's assume mm-hmm. it is true. Again, I know, understand it may not be true, but let's assume it's true that deworming uh, of children, reduction of parasites, 
has an enormous improvement in their ability to sit in school and do better. Mm. Uh, that would be a that would be important. That w- I wouldn't call that a little tiny thing. It's true that if you're trying to sit in school in a country that doesn't have a very good economy, sitting in school doesn't have as big a return as it would have if the economy was better, which is your point. But I wouldn't want to argue – I don't think we want to argue that it's trivial, and I might not even want to argue it's small. It, it might be somewhat big. I don't know. Uh, no, it's not, um, and that, that's a good example, right? Because this is something we actually know facts about, and facts are good, right? Yeah, um, so, <clears throat> so the world does internationally comparable assessments of student learning, and they're roughly normed so that the mean is 500 in OECD countries, and the student standard deviation across all countries is 100, which means sort of only 16% of you know, OECD students are below 400. So that's kind of the range of performance, right? Um, as we try and chain link to discover what the poor countries who don't participate in PISA score like, the scores in India, the two Indian states that participated in PISA, the scores were around 320, which means, Low you number. know, just unbelievably no number. Uh, you know, the, the, literally you would put, you know, the, the average student in India in eighth grade would be in the bottom one percentile if they were suddenly put in a Danish or U.S. school. Unbelievably low, right? And, by the way, low at 320 and not a huge variance, actually. So the number of people even scouring above 400 is very, very small. When was this? So what year are we talking about? Th- this was 2009. Okay. In India. This was in India, PISA exam. They did a PISA exam in two states, and India chose what they thought would be the best two states. So that probably is an overstatement. It must be a pretty substantial overstatement of the performance India-wide, because they did it in two states that everybody thought would do the best. Or with good reason. So, Hamacho Pradesh and Tamil Nadu. So, so now we say, okay, we have a gap of 180 points between India and the U.S. Right? Yep. How many of those points are we going to get from deworming? Suppose we achieve universal, not a single kid is suffering from worms. I have no idea. I don't know. My, my guess is one. We'll go from 320 to 321. Why? (laughs) Because it's just not that big a deal. Well, maybe because they they don't go to school, they can't concentrate. And if we can deworm them, they can get up to 450. No, no. It just, nothing about the empirical estimates suggests anything like that's true. Okay. It's just just not that big a deal. (laughs) Because after all, it's the, you you know, it's the... <laughs> the net impact is going to be fraction of kids actually suffering from worms times, you know, reduction in fraction of kids suffering from worms from deworming times the incremental score of an Indian kid with no worms over an Indian kid with worms, right? That's the kind of causal chain. And I'm pretty sure if you multiply out those numbers in, in, in India, you're talking about you know, a number that's going to be more like one than is even going to be like 10 and certainly not going to be like 100. There's no way, shape, or form. I mean, in fact, these, there's no way, shape, or form uh, <clears throat> these uh, effects are on the order of 100. I don't even think, and I, I haven't done this calculation, but I, I, from, you know, reading the original studies, you get incremental 
score improvements. And the key thing was there were externalities, so it kind of improved everybody's scores to address this, and that's another question. But it's just it's just not a first order effect. So. I am doing research on the question of how do we get a country like India from 320 to 500, and more research on deworming just isn't helpful. Just isn't helpful. It's fundamental features of the system, how it works, how teachers are hired, how teachers are assessed, and how teachers perform, how is the curriculum relative to their ability to implement it. Just all kinds of features are huge first-order features, but they're very difficult to do precise attributable studies of, and so the research is massively biased towards the questions we know are important, towards the questions we know can have attributable research done. Yeah, I guess and we I- just... We just know that that's not the answer. I guess the a parallel way to think about this might be malaria. Uh, yeah. Should we? Malaria is a different story, by the way. Well, I just want to hear why, because you could argue, well, we could give people bed nets. They might not use them. They might not use them correctly. Or we should try to eradicate mosquitoes in, in certain or things Absolutely. that allow mosquitoes to flourish. And again, the question would be, do we know how to do those two things in ways that are effective? And if we only know how to do one that's effective, we might do that one, even though it's not as good as the other. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't want to minimize the impact of, say, if only 5% of, of India suffers from a worm problem, and those kids actually can, they can bump up to a much higher number. I wouldn't, and again, I, I think you're overstating the effect. It sounds like nobody, it. nobody, well, nobody I, claims it's a much, a much higher number. It's I, a higher number, but I, I don't think anybody well, actually think claims the, a much higher number. Your point about the standard deviation within India is the right point. If you know there are a bunch of people there who don't have the worm problem, it could be they have right. other things that are associated with the worm problem that are true. Anyway, it's a complicated thing, but. Um, we're almost out of time. Let's. But the question should be: yeah. How do we get countries from three twenty to five hundred? That's the question. And is it the case that research aimed at only those things that are narrowly and easily attributable is the right research, or are there in fact likely large systemic effects that explain these huge differences? And even if we can't do absolutely precise attributable research, we can have a presumption in certain directions, like a presumption for learning performance. And within that presumption for learning forms, we can point to some specific directions like teaching at the right level. And that those, like Adam Smith's presumption delivery, those presumptions towards certain things actually are going to have cumulative huge effects, more so than had we devoted equivalent amounts of money exclusively on the premise that what's attributable is what's important. I think that's the huge mistake, is we're running into causal attributability as the issue versus success as the issue. Success is the issue. We should be focused on success, not on being the high scorer. My guest has been Lant Pritchett. Lant, thanks for being part of EconTalk. <laughs> thanks, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.